all the barriers that people raise saying I'd start a business if are not real. The only thing that stops a business being created is the energy, the drive, the self-belief, the self-awareness of the individual or the teams that are, are starting the business. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. Today, we'll hear from the entrepreneur who literally took the biscuit, but then brought it back. This is the Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with the business leaders who are forever cooking up new ideas. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genreich and today I'm meeting Michael Carey, who had the sad task of closing the iconic Jacob's Biscuits factory, but later the joy of launching a new Irish bakehouse. It was a, a dream that uh, I always had, the idea of owning a business, of following in the footsteps of my parents, perhaps in, a, uh, in, in that context of having the control over my own future, having the freedom to create something of value. Um, it was something that I really wanted to achieve. Michael's route into business was more rocky road than cookies and cream. I was uh, sitting in my, the gentleman I reported to, the European president, and he highlighted the fact that he didn't feel this was working and we best if we finished and could I be out of the building by midday. Gosh. Um, so I was fired. And imagine this feeling. You've just pushed the button on a brand new biscuit factory and then your biggest market votes to leave the single market. Our plan was to export about 80% of the output to the UK market. So the last two years have been really traumatic. We have had to change, we've had to pivot. Today we'll hear about Michael's career highs and lows and a Brexit plan B. Michael Carey, great to meet you. Thank you very much for coming in to us. Um, you're in the biscuit trade, you must have a favourite. I've worked in the biscuit industry for nearly 30 years. Um, my favourite biscuit is an East Coast Bakehouse ah, chunk, chunk cookie. It is incredible. Is that your, is that your flagship made, product these days? The best-selling product made with real Irish butter, Irish oats. Uh, it's fantastic. Are people's tastes in biscuits changing in general? The big-selling biscuits remain exactly the same as they were 100 years ago. Um, uh, there's lots of innovation around the sides, lots of new things happening. Uh, there's better nutritional offers. There's more indulgent products. But the, the core products remain the same. Uh, they just keep improving. But you were saying as well, I mean, you've been in the biscuit trade for a long time. You used to work at uh, Jacobs and, and, and Fox's as well in the UK. Is that right? What about those staples like digestives and rich teas and things like yep. that? I mean, still are they, selling. Are they still as popular as ever? Absolutely. The biscuit market is flat. It's uh, uh, every year um, over the last couple of decades, it's gone either up 1% or down 1%. Uh, biscuits are really part of everyday life. Uh, consumers in Ireland and Britain particularly uh, eat biscuits as part of their daily routine and um, uh, and that has, hasn't changed You were the, the kind of the steward of the old Irish icons for a while the, 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 the Kimberleys, Macados and Coconut Creams are our kind of tastes for them remaining the same as far as you know? Or Yeah I used to, uh, I worked in uh, at Jacobs on two occasions uh, the first time I was there as a marketing director uh, and then I bought the business uh, I came back and bought the business in 2004 uh, those Great old Irish brands are still there. They're still performing well. Um, uh, they're, they're great products, part of our childhood. They're part of our memories. And, uh, and families, parents still provide them to their children. Um, uh, yeah, they will be there forever. 
Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Special place in all our hearts. But now you've got a new brand, uh, East Coast Bakehouse, up and running, doing well? We've been planning this project for about four years. Uh, we got it up and running exactly two years ago, uh, on the same month that Britain decided to leave the European Union. And our plan was to establish the largest biscuit production unit, uh, largest biscuit production line in Europe, uh, which we've done. Uh, and our plan was to export about 80% of the output to the UK market. Uh, so we've had to change dramatically. So the last two years have been really traumatic uh, through a startup, uh, through a very um, intense uh, period of growing a new business. Uh, we have had to change. We've had to pivot. Uh, we've, uh, so the UK market is now not as important in our plans. It's still there, but it's not as important as it would have been. Uh, we're now trading in 20 countries. Uh, we now have a much stronger presence here in Ireland uh, where where retailers are particularly concerned about Brexit uh, and giving us a greater opportunity to provide local products here in the in the Irish market. It seems it's always been your dream to have an Irish biscuit factory. Why, why is it uh, so important um, to you? Creating a, a new uh, food manufacturing business of scale uh, as a sort of a startup is uh, a pretty unusual step. Uh, very few uh, individuals have uh, tried to do it. Very few teams of people have tried to start at scale. Um, for me, uh, the the fact that in the Irish market uh, there's five million euros worth of biscuits imported into Ireland every week, uh, consumed every week, put on the shelves biscuits. of biscuits, imported biscuits, mainly from the UK. Um, uh, East Coast Bakehouse is the only um, uh, producer of biscuits here on the island of scale. There's a lot of small artisan biscuit companies around the country who do really beautiful products, fantastic products, but they can't compete. They're not, they're not uh, a manufacturing facility of scale, and you have to be to compete. So we've laid down the, most, uh, the largest individual biscuit production line in Europe, uh, and we're making great progress. We'll do about uh, 8 million euro of turnover this year. Uh, the plant has the capacity to produce about 30 million. Uh, so we're going through a very rapid growth, and we, we believe that'll be full probably in about three years. Were you in any way nervous, though, I suppose, setting that up? Because, of course, you know, you've had a, a biscuit factory here in the past, the Jacobs factory, which, unfortunately, you had to close. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder what's different this time around. Yeah, a lot of biscuit manufacturing has been around in old uh, factories with a lot of legacy costs associated with them. And the older ones, like unfortunately, like the old Jacobs factory, uh, had uh, very significant legacy costs. Uh, that made them uncompetitive and there was less and less being produced in that plant because it couldn't compete. Uh, More and more was being imported from uh, more efficient plants. Uh, So having a a new facility, well invested with the very best equipment, uh, the most efficient processes, uh, a great team of people working on it, uh, is is like the new life of biscuit manufacturing in Ireland. And, um, uh, And Yes, we were cautious about it and we were concerned of the risks associated with starting a business of this scale. Uh, the total investment in this business is €20 million. Euro. Uh, so it's a big bet. It's a, it's a large bet on, a, on an opportunity which we have no doubt exists. Uh, and, and we believe we'll get a good payback on that. Listen, you've got a lot of strings to your story. Uh, I, w- I want to get through them all. But let's go back to the very beginning, I suppose, and your uh, you know, journey into the, the food business. Um, you started out kind of, uh, th- th- well, there was business in your blood, wasn't there? I grew up in, a, uh, in Cabra on the north side of Dublin. Uh, my parents had a newsagent shop 
and we lived in the rooms above the New Jersey shop. So we, we grew up in a business, literally in a business. So every day there was conversations about uh, about business. Every breakfast time there was a chat about who was supplying stuff, who which, which delivery man was due to arrive and we had to open the back gate to let something in or uh, we had to open up the shop to let the first customers come in and buy their newspapers. Um, uh, so... Every day, every meal, there was debates about business and discussions about cash flows and banks. And uh, for a, a a little shop that literally had the family running it and a couple of, of local staff who who who, um, who worked from time to time. Can you think of any lessons you learned in that time that you still see kind of playing out in your your life today? I think everything to do with business that I know was based on that foundation of uh, understanding how to deal with customers, uh, engaging with. Um, uh, with local customers who came and and knew my father's name, my mother's name, and would chat to them, and would it was it was like a local pub almost. It was, it was a news agent shop, but it was a, a place where people came in to chat and engage, and that engagement with customers at whatever level, uh, be it a brand, be it a, a a small local shop, that engagement with customers is crucial to building a business. Um, so that foundation was laid. I think the management of cash, management of of uh, the basic management of business. Um, uh, the ability to interact with people, be it suppliers or um, or uh, our customers, uh, all of those things were learned from just growing up in that environment. Mm. So you didn't go straight into business for yourself. You uh, spent a, a, a serious period of time working in kind of with, with household brands. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I left college. I went to college. I uh, went to UCD, studied business, uh, commerce, and uh, and a master's in marketing. And then left and went into the food industry. And I've been in the food industry now for 35 years. Frightening thought. Um, uh, and the first half of that time was working for multinational food companies. So I, I worked for Bachelors, for Foxes, um, Biscuits in the UK, uh, for uh, Evian and Volvic, um, as managing director of Evian and Volvic for the UK, as Jacobs, uh, marketing director here in, in Dublin. Um, and ultimately as uh, Managing Director of Kellogg's for the UK and Ireland, uh, based in their European head office at the time in uh, Manchester. And did you always think that someday you'd strike out and do something by yourself? It was a, a dream that uh, I always had, the idea of owning a business, of, of uh, following in the footsteps of my parents, perhaps in, a, uh, in, in that context of, of having the, the control over my own future, having the freedom to create something of value. Um, it was something that I really wanted to achieve. Uh, as I progressed further and further in my career working for uh, large food companies, it was probably becoming less and less of a likely uh, outcome. Um, the, the risk became higher. The risk became the idea of leaving the comfort of the corporate life. Um, being managing director of Kellogg's for the UK and Ireland is a, a very well-paid job with lots of, lots of benefits, lots of comforts. And a and a huge structure uh, around um, uh, me as an individual doing that job, and the idea of moving from that environment into a startup uh, is a sort of frightening transition. Really. And yes, you did it. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was very fortunate. I, Why um, did you do it? Why did you I, take the risk? I actually didn't make the decision. I was fired by Kellogg's. I, I was. Um, I didn't fit in with the Kellogg way of doing things. I was employed from, uh, I, uh, prior to that, I was managing director of Fox's Biscuits, and they recruited me in as managing director of Kellogg's. Um, most of the senior managers in Kellogg's are developed through the organization, and they, they, they build up their careers in that culture. Uh, and I was coming from outside. 
And I found the culture of Kellogg's to be um, uh, constraining. Uh, I uh, had a sense of powerlessness in a, in a senior position because of the multinational nature of it and the matrix structures that are in place for, for businesses of that scale. And I'd come from a business where I was running as managing director of Foxes. I was being allowed, to, it was still part of a multinational, but I was allowed to run that business as if it was my own. So that transition I found very hard. And I didn't fit in. And to be fair to Kellogg's, they are one of the most successful food companies in the world. Their system works. It's a, it's a great process. They have really strong processes and systems. Um, but the, the, the culture for me wasn't what I was used to. It just wasn't And I really struggled. And they recruited me in. It was a, a, a bad appointment from their point of view. <laughs> Most importantly, but also from my point of view, it was a it was a a, a misstep in a career. You use that um, word fired. Um, when a lot of people leave a company for that very very reason, mm-hmm. there's generally this kind of soft speak around it, like you know, parted by mutual agreement or something like that. You're obviously not a believer in in um, that. You call it as as you see it. No, it was uh, uh, it wasn't by mutual agreement. <laughs> I was uh, sitting in my uh, the the gentleman I reported to, the European president, and he highlighted the fact that he didn't feel this was working and we best if we finished and could I be out of the building by midday. Um, So I was fired. Um, And again, to be fair to Kellogg's, as I said, they have great processes, they have great systems and they have a great way of firing senior executives and they handled it incredibly professionally. They managed the process. I learned a huge amount about how they they handled that process Uh, and they were very generous. And I suppose the one piece of advice I can sort of sit here and give today in, in that period of my life if anybody ever gets fired by anyone in their career get fired by Kellogg's they're a fantastic <laughs> business to get fired by they're really generous and they gave me a a financial payment uh, that provided us with the um, the springboard to uh, allow me to go into the for the next chapter the second phase of, yeah. uh, of actually owning businesses and uh, and moving on from there but listen what was going through your mind at the time was it was it terror or was it relief uh, no total shock and uh a huge disappointment and uh, a sense of um, a loss of role uh, when 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 you're fired in a business or you lose your job. There's a sense of being derolled, and I'd come from from being in that position of being in the managing director of of a, a very large organisation and walking into the building with a, a certain status, I suppose. And uh, I'd convinced myself that I was uh, I had uh, had that status justifiably, and then to be suddenly told, actually, you don't, you're gone, mm-hmm. and uh, out you go. Um, uh, there is a, no, it was a horrible experience uh, um, but we came back my, um, myself and my wife Alison Alison Kauser uh, we had just had our first child Shona uh, we uh, decided to return to Dublin uh, we came back to Dublin and we set about literally within the next week or two we set about establishing our, our first business and we called it Shona Foods after our daughter not not hugely creative um, and Shona Foods became the platform to uh, acquire other food businesses and uh, we went on to build up uh, our, our first business So when you were kind of released from the the, the reins that were put upon you, not just by Kellogg's, but I guess by other, uh, you know, big companies that you worked for and all their rules and processes. What did you, what did you know you wanted to do differently when you were doing it for yourself? The, the obsession that I think food companies need to have, and not every food company has, and actually very few food companies have, is an obsession with food and getting the food right, getting the offering of uh, the, the quality of the food, the taste of the food, the nutrition of the food. Getting those elements right should be the most basic um, requirement for a food business. 
but it's extraordinary. Very few food companies, and, and particularly the big ones, uh, really don't take care of their food. Um, so there's a process of of re-engineering of food products to get costs down. Uh, there's a huge pressure on food manufacturers to sell products cheaply. Uh, consumers expect cheap products. Retailers push down the prices, of co- uh, the costs of products. Uh, the the response from food manufacturing generally is to shave the quality of the food, uh, bring down the costs, uh, and that's happened in every category. It's happened right across the the board, in particularly in, in biscuits. And I think that's why we've been presented with a, an opportunity to actually present biscuits that are are made well with good ingredients, made efficiently, but using really good ingredients. And and that process of of shaving bits of quality off product is very easy to to convince yourself that it's okay um there's a concept of a sort of salami effect if you take one slice off a salami and you ask a consumer and show them before and after it's the same salami nobody knows the difference there's no difference in length you take another slice still nobody knows the difference so each slice can be um you can convince yourself that the quality of the food is is exactly the same as it was before Eventually, the salami is shorter, uh, and and food companies are going through that salami slicing process. Can you give and, me any, uh, any kind of examples, though, of, of of actual instances where you yeah. were kind of expected mm-hmm. to to cut out the more expensive and the better quality <clears throat> ingredients? Practically every food company, every multinational food company, goes through a process of of reducing their costs. Um, the highest profile one recently, just last year, uh, was uh, Toblerone, part of the Mondelez uh, Group. Uh, where to hit a price point, they increase the gap between the peaks of the uh, of the Toblerone to, to get the cost of the product down yeah. to sell That's the product. That's making it smaller, though, but I just wonder about the ingredients that go into the actual product. Are you yeah. talking about kind of throwing more in more bad things like E-numbers, preservatives and, Unfortunately, and sugar? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. It's a, in biscuits, uh, almost every biscuit now is manufactured using uh, palm oil. Uh, as the fat in the within the biscuit uh, product in, in East Coast Bakehouse, we're using butter. Um, um, so using a, a natural a natural pure Irish butter ingredient as the base. Uh, and, and if you go back 20, 30 years, lots of companies were using yeah. butter. And palm oil um, is, is something that it, lots of people are talking about and are worried about. And it's, right? a, uh, it's a fraction of the cost of butter. Yeah. So that's the reason for doing it. it to try and minimise the impact, so leaving aside the taste and the quality issue, to minimise the environmental impact, a lot of companies are insisting on sustainable palm oil and, and finding ways to, to to avoid it having horrific uh, environmental problems um, uh, in terms of how it's sourced and the impact it has on uh, on the environment. Um, um, but from a cost point of view, it's a it's, it's just one example. Everything else the same. The thickness of chocolate on a on a digestive biscuit is not the same as it was 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. Um, um, every, every category is the same. You bring up chocolate digestives there again. Um, one of your bigger leaps was acquiring Jacobs, the, the makers of those, those are kind of iconic Irish biscuits. Tell, tell me about how that ended up under your ownership and, and, and you know, what your plans were to, to reshape the company. Yeah. We... Um, I, I said we had created a, a foundation business called Shona Foods. We used that as a platform to acquire uh, food businesses. And the first one we acquired was uh, Fruitfield Foods from Nestle. Uh, the international group were selling uh, one of their Irish businesses, uh, which included Fruitfield jams and marmalades, Chef Sauces, uh, Silvermints, and some other brands. So we bought that business in um, 2002. 
Uh, we used the Kellogg's check as our equity investment. Uh, we got together with a couple of other colleagues, um, an organisation called uh, Lion Court Capital, David Andrews and Michael Tunney, uh, also invested. And so between us, we put in a million euro uh, as an investment. Um, uh, we held uh, 60% and David and Michael held 20% each. And we we used that platform to acquire uh, Fruitfield from Nestle which was funded by that equity plus uh, mainly bank debt. Uh, it was July 2002. Uh, it was just a couple of days before my 40th birthday. Um, and uh, we acquired that business. It was a loss-making business. It was a, uh, it was turning over about 25 million euro, losing about 2 million euro. And we put a management team in place. We managed that business, gave it some focus, gave it some attention. And within a year, it was profitable. And by 2004, we were in a position to use that as a platform to acquire another business. And Jacobs came up for sale. Group Danone, the French food group, where I used to work, um, had uh, decided to sell their their biscuit businesses, and they put the the Jacobs business on the market. And we entered a process. We uh, acquired that business uh, in uh, the uh, end of two thousand and four, and we brought those businesses together to create a group which we called the Jacob Fruitfield Food Group. Um, and continue to build a management team um, uh, and continue to run that business for about uh, eight or ten years. Uh, going through some, as, as we said earlier, going through some changes, uh, going through some uh, uh, adjustments and, and building brands, changing the way things were done, trying to make the business more efficient uh, uh, until we got to a point where the business had uh, a reasonable level of profitability and it was stable and was uh, turning over, when we sold the business, it was turning over about 100 million euros. But, I mean, sadly, I suppose, for that period, people will off mostly probably remember it, those outside the company, for, for the closure of the, the, mm. the biscuit factory in, in, in Tala. Uh, tell me what, you know, what went wrong there? You know, you, you must have had a, a plan to, you know, put the business on an even keel. And why didn't it work out? Yeah, it was a difficult, a really difficult time. Uh, it was difficult for, for the people involved who were working in the, in the, uh, in the uh, factory and difficult for ourselves. Like everybody going through the process, uh, was, nobody was enjoying it. It was a manufacturing facility that was hugely underutilized. It was a very old factory. Some of the machinery was 70, 80 years old. Uh, it was completely uncompetitive. It was, uh, it was losing contracts. Uh, it was producing about 8,000 tonnes of biscuits. Uh, the plant we've set up in Drogheda uh, can produce 20,000 tonnes of biscuits. So the, the output from that plant, a very large uh, building, but the output was almost gone to nothing. And uh, it had very high costs and uh, it just couldn't compete. Uh, so to, to get the business to a point where it was financially uh, stable, we had to go through changes. And, and unfortunately, part of that change was uh, uh, the closure of the manufacturing facility. I think we, we acted in a way which was um, uh, fair. Uh, we treated people well. Uh, there was no industrial actions as part of the process. There was a agreement with the unions. We paid uh, seven times, uh, seven weeks per year of service uh, to in redundancy payments. The legislation requires two weeks. Um, uh, individuals left with, with settlements. That some of them were very happy to retire early. Um, some were fairly transitory and we're going to probably leave anyway and, and but they got a payment to leave but there were a group who were very badly affected by it and uh, and it's probably my greatest uh, the most difficult period uh, and and a period when uh, uh, it wasn't 
it wasn't positive for anybody. It was it was difficult for some people in that in that business, but we did everything we could to make it. Uh, gave as much notice as possible. I think it was a year's notice to help uh, people take on the implications of that change, um, and we managed it as well as I think could be done. But did, it, did it make you question? I suppose the economics of actually doing manufacturing in Ireland because you no. know, when the factory closed, yeah. you moved production overseas. Mm-hmm. No, uh, it. That manufacturing facility was uh, was uh, uncompetitive. It doesn't make manufacturing uncompetitive in Ireland. There's a huge opportunity in Ireland for manufacturing of food products. The level of imports of consumer food packaged products into Ireland is obscene uh, in every category. Uh, in biscuits, 99% of all the products sold on supermarket shelves are imported. Uh, the same applies to categories like yogurt. A huge proportion of yogurt is imported. Um, uh, confectionery, massive proportion of confectionery is imported. There's, there's loads of opportunities. If a manufacturing facility can be established that's efficient, that's well invested, uh, that can put the can raise the financing to make it work and do it right, uh, manufacturing in Ireland has a fantastic future. Okay, Michael Carey, do stay with us because still to come on the Architects of Business, we'll hear about life after Jacobs and the living nightmare of opening a new factory in the very same week as that Brexit referendum. You're listening to the Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and this year's finalists. Get in touch. Mail us on thearchitectsofbusiness at joe.ie. So... You had built up Jacob Fruitfield as your kind of really your first major enterprise of your own, uh, and then you sold up uh, in what year was it? Twenty twenty twelve? You sold it up. Twenty eleven. Twenty eleven. And why did you make that decision? We were building uh, Jacob Fruitfield into a a substantial business, hundred million turnover, um, a really good uh, portfolio of brands, and we felt that the future of those brands was probably in in uh, had a better future if it was part of a larger organisation that it, it could work in tandem with with other brands and other structures. Uh, so our options were to continue to build or to step back from it and see if if it could be built as part in partnership with somebody else. Um, uh, we were approached by a group called Valio Foods, uh, who had just recently acquired Bachelors and um, Shamrock and some other brands. And they were keen to take the Jacob Fruitfield brands into their uh, into their uh, portfolio. Uh, so a deal was done where we sold the business to Valio. Uh, our management team, uh, led by Seamus Carney, who was our managing director working for us in, in Jacob Fruitfield, became the chief executive of the Valio Food Group as part of that process. And he continues to be in that role. Uh, building the Valio Food Group into probably one of the most successful Irish food companies um, in terms of rapid pace of growth, heading towards 800, 900 million turnover uh, currently uh, with an outstanding management team led by, by Seamus Carney. And is that because it's, um, it's basically got a lot of Irish brands, kind of iconic Irish brands yeah, they're more brought into the same family and under one roof, the type of brands that aren't sold overseas? Yeah, they're more than that. So yes, they do that and they do that exceptionally well. Uh, but they also have acquired businesses in the UK and acquired businesses in Italy. Uh, so they're a big company now. They're a large, really strong uh, food company coming from nothing. And they've built that up. Uh, the main shareholder is uh, Catfest, a private equity firm. Um, and as part of that process, when we sold the business to them, we um, uh, took about half of the equity off in cash and we reinvested the other half back into the Valio Food Group. So for 
up until very recently, I continued to be a shareholder in the Valio Food Group and, and watched uh, with huge admiration of how they continue to build those brands and uh, and create more value in that uh, for that investment. You also, though, probably walked away with quite a sizable wad of cash in your back pocket. How much were we talking um, about? And yes, it was a. Uh, it hasn't it hasn't been public, but it was uh, well in excess of a hundred times the investment we made in our original business. Okay. Um, so financially, it was a it was a great outcome. Uh, it uh, it changed our lives. Myself and Alison uh, have sort of moved on to a sort of a new phase. In, in our careers of uh, becoming investors in startups and, and doing other things that we want to do outside business. Um, you could have headed off and put your feet up and sip cocktails on the beach. That uh, doesn't seem to be in your DNA. Financially, yes. There was no... Um, uh, we don't have financial concerns of that type. Um, but you have to do something. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a, I'm, I'm now 55. Uh, back then I was... Uh, early fifties, and uh, and it's a long way to go. It's an awful, an awful lot of games of golf to fill your days <laughs> until you can't. Uh, you not work on that. You can't camp. walk anymore. <laughs> um, uh, so no, you have to do something, and and doing things that we do now are are. Uh, it's, we're incredibly lucky. We're incredibly fortunate to be in a position where financially we can perhaps take some risks, uh, take uh, go into areas that we wouldn't normally do, and do things that have nothing to do with financial return and, and uh, use our time in ways that we want to. When we look at uh, the EOY, uh, the EY uh, Entrepreneur of the Year uh, finalists who come through every year, the, the quality of the finalists is extraordinary. It's every year. This year, better than probably previous years. The, the, the numbers of finalists that keep coming through somehow is, uh, is fantastic. And in, in judging, as I'm very fortunate to have been a judge on the programme now for seven or eight years, in judging the finalists uh, to select who the winner should be in each category, uh, it's not just about the financial progress. It's not just about the the uh, the numbers on a, on, a, on a balance sheet or a profit and loss account. It's about the depth of the company and uh, the, the energy levels of the entrepreneur and what they're trying to achieve, not just in terms of creating wealth for themselves. It, there has to be more than more. There has to be more than just more more profit, more cash, uh, and and the really good companies. And the, and when you look at the former winners, you see, you see some fantastic examples of companies that have much more depth. In terms of kind of giving something to a society or an economy that it currently lacks. Yeah, I think having a greater impact on on society. Businesses need to have a positive impact, and they can. And, and an awful lot of businesses do. The number of people who are involved, a number of years back, uh, actually 10 years ago, uh, as part of the EY programme, we went to Haiti on our uh, annual retreat. And a group of us got involved in creating a, uh, uh, the Soul of Haiti Foundation uh, as a way of giving back to some of the communities that we met there. And we helped establish a number of businesses, a bakery, a farm, uh, a fishing village uh, with support where they had, had electricity, solar-powered electricity for the first time. Uh, a number of projects that wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the entrepreneurs getting together and trying to make a positive impact on that on that society. Um, uh, finding being in a position where financially a lot of businesses, in a lot of individuals, a lot of entrepreneurs who formerly being finalists in the Entrepreneur of the Year, find themselves in a position now where they've got some financial resource, they've got some time, perhaps. Uh, the number of people in this community who contribute to making our society better is fantastic. And uh, it, spending time with people like that is the most rewarding, uh, the most positive. I think it's why this community works. 
you've got a group of like-minded people who want to make a difference, who want to make an impact, uh, and they do. And, and you have done that. You've put your money into other food companies. Yeah, we um, when we sold uh, Jacob Foodfield, as I say, we rolled some of the equity into Valio, but we also set up a business called The Company of Food, uh, which is a platform for investments in food companies. So mostly investing our own funds, but also in in tandem with other investors uh, looking for opportunities in food, uh, food and drink. So we've done uh, about half a dozen food investments. Um, uh, mostly uh, they, they seem to be working. Uh, one we invested in and we've exited and got a return on it. We're quite happy. Um, uh, one has failed completely and uh, we uh, will never see the cash again. Uh, actually two, two have failed. Uh, the others look promising and continue to, and we continue to support them. We found it a little frustrating, uh, our attempts to find opportunities of scale to invest in the food category were uh, was slow. Uh, there isn't a huge deal flow of food opportunities in, in Ireland. Um, we want to be in Ireland, we stayed in Ireland, we pay our taxes in Ireland. Uh, when we sold the business we didn't go overseas despite all of the advice that we get from the great financial institutions. Uh, we stayed here and we paid our taxes and we will stay here and pay our taxes. It's not a, uh, we have no interest in uh, in uh, changing our lifestyles for the sake of, of a small financial gain of that type. We found many food startups are lifestyle businesses. We found a lot of individuals who have great businesses and great brands, but when they consider the implication of taking the business on to the next stage of the implications of bringing in more finance, the implications of perhaps having to put a board together or taking somebody who will distract them from what they want to do themselves and uh, um, having to make choices perhaps they wouldn't make if it was just their own business, uh, having to deal with multiple retailers or food service groups. Uh, those sort of transitions and those changes are things that a lot of people, when they realise the implications of growth, a lot of individuals who started food companies don't really want to go down that I road. I assume they want to, to stay small. They want to stay small. They're lifestyle business, and they're probably right. They're, for many individuals, they've got small businesses making a good living out of it. Uh, why would they want to deal with why bring on the headaches? With the retailers or the banks or the uh, or, uh, board of directors? Or, um, so for many people, they don't want to make that choice when they realise the implications of, uh, of growth. And is that why um, you've ended up doing it again for yourselves, yeah. kind of starting yeah. with a clean cheese and yeah. launching East Coast Bakehouse? Yeah, we've started a couple of businesses, uh, um, not backing other people, but uh, initiating them ourselves and putting management teams together uh, as part of our, our uh, initiative. And East Coast Bakehouse is the most significant of those. Uh, a total of 20 million euro has been invested. Uh, it's been supported hugely by Enterprise Ireland. Uh, they've been fantastic. Uh, the Enterprise Ireland offerings for startups is really, without any exaggeration, this project would not have happened without the, both the financial support and the advice from Enterprise Ireland. Um, the support from Board Bia. I've been involved in Board Bia for many years. I was formerly the chairman up until recently. Uh, but the the support and advice from Board Bia is outstanding. As a food industry, we're incredibly fortunate to have the state bodies involved in supporting startups. Uh, in, in establishing this business, East Coast Bakehouse, we uh, have three sources of funding. Uh, equity, um, both our own personal equity, but also we brought in third-party investors. Um, we sold 30% of the equity uh, of the business plan before a brick was put on the ground. Um, we, we raised €3.5 million euro. Uh, from about 10 or 12 investors. Uh, a number of them are former EY Entrepreneur of the Year finalists. Uh, one of them uh, actually sits on our board. A number of them are ex-food industry 
individuals who've uh, sold food businesses and have come on board as uh, as investors. But do you, um, do you get a business like that off the ground without just classic credit? Bank bank debt is part of the the structure and part necessary structure. There has to be some debt financing to make the numbers work. Uh, so the equity, the three pieces of source of funding were equity, uh, Enterprise Ireland funding, and bank debt. And the bank debt piece was the most difficult. It was uh, trying to get that over the line in time for the project to progress. Um, uh, at a startup phase, all the plates need to spin at the same time. Uh, you have to get the deal done, you have to get the property, you have to get the, the management team together, and you have to get all the elements of finance all together at the same time. And getting all those plates to spin together is probably the most difficult, uh, the greatest hurdle a startup of scale has to go through. And in terms of funding, the most frustrating part of those three parts were uh, the bank debt. Uh, we did get bank funding. Uh, we have great support from uh, Ulster Bank, uh, who in reality were the only bank that were willing to uh, consider uh, an investment in a startup. And most banks, all, almost all banks, uh, struggle with the concept of uh, bank debt being provided for startups, where there's no there's no cash flow to fund, there's probably no property of any, any equity value in the property beyond uh, the purchase price. Uh, there, there's nothing to fund in a startup other than the belief in the management team, the belief in the plan, and, and the products that banks have on offer really don't meet the needs of startups. Um, the advertising slogans that the banks run uh, don't really find their way into reality. Um, it's not an original line, but the, the guy who, who writes the bank's ads is not the same guy who lends the money. It's, a really, it's really, really difficult for startups to get banks to support them. And, and probably, to, to be fair to the banks, probably rightly so, because the banks are, they don't have the products available for startups. But is that, is, is that a problem that startup entrepreneurs in other countries experience? Not as much. I think the, the pain that the banks in Ireland have gone through and the people who work in the banks have gone through have put them in a position where they find making those decisions, taking that risk, uh, probably unnecessary. Now, why would they want to put themselves in that position? Why would a bank want to take a risk with a startup? And I think when you talk to the senior management in banks, they very openly say startups are, are probably more appropriate for equity funding or for for private equity uh, organisations or for, for other sources of funding. But, but standard banks struggle with startups. So when you think about that risk aversion uh, among the banks and you think about what happened whenever you um, set the ball rolling on East Coast Bakehouse and put the production line into action, you can hardly blame them because that was Brexit week. Yeah, yeah. It was a... Uh, when we woke up that morning and saw the, uh, saw the result, uh, it was a bit of a shock. Uh, we had a plan which said 80% of our products was going to go into the UK almost all as retail private label. Well, we discovered very quickly that the retailers in the UK, uh, from, uh, the, the, first, the first change was the currency issue had moved, so we suddenly became uncompetitive. Uh, we were struggling to get the price points that we needed to reach to, uh, to, to get the contracts. But also the retailers in the UK were looking at what was happening with Brexit and they were already sourcing within Britain uh, and we were asking them to change their sourcing and go outside Britain. And with the uncertainty and the, the risks associated with what might happen uh, on Brexit, UK retailers were hesitating. And um, uh, that has been a struggle. We've, we've made some progress more recently on it, but it has, was a struggle and really slowed us down. How, um, how perilous did it feel at the time? I mean, suddenly all your well-laid plans had been utterly cast asunder. Yeah, yeah. We had to find other opportunities very quickly. Um, we had to do things that we, in our business plan, uh, we had intended to go beyond the UK, 
uh, in year three, year four of our of our business development program, uh, we had to pull all that forward. Uh, we had to look at the opportunities m- much more aggressively in the domestic Irish market, where we could see that the opportunity here, if there is a hard Brexit, the opportunity here in Ireland is massive. We're the only manufacturer of biscuits of scale. Five million euros of biscuits are being imported into Ireland every week. Uh, the retailers who are buying their retail private label are buying their brands, mainly in the UK, uh, may be hit with, with tariffs or at least difficulty in trading, uh, possibly. If that were to happen, sourcing locally is a huge opportunity. So does that um, seem for you that the, the, the worst of Brexit is out of the way? There was the initial shock and you had to change your plans, but you, you say you're now treating the prospect of hard Brexit as as an opportunity? We have huge opportunities that have been thrown up by Brexit. So we're, the domestic market is one. All of the Irish retailers are hugely aware of the risks of associated with Brexit and they want to mitigate those risks. And no, no retailer wants to be the one left behind importing biscuits when, when everybody else is sourcing some products, at least locally. Um, so the opportunities in Ireland uh, and working with the Irish retailers who've massively supported us in, in getting going with our business. We have listings in every major supermarket. Uh, we have, there's a recognition of the, a uh, really positive recognition of the need to source locally. Um, so in the domestic market, uh, there's a big opportunity. And the fact that we've been forced to look beyond the UK for export uh, markets has put us in a much stronger position. Uh, we're, we're trading now in 20 countries. Uh, we have found routes and, and access to agents in uh, working through a, a number of uh, structures that have were opportunities we never would have considered, we never would have thought of. Uh, we didn't even know we needed to do it if Brexit hadn't happened. So we're, we're probably in a much stronger position than we would have been if I, I, Brexit hadn't been decided. Are you in any way concerned, though, about the, the wider Irish economy and how it would fare in the event of a, of a hard Brexit? Yeah, yeah, hugely. For the, for the food industry in total, uh, the UK is 37% of all Irish exports, uh, 50% of all beef exports. Eighty uh, percent of cheese of cheddar cheese into the UK. Uh, for for businesses in those categories, uh, it's a massive problem. It's a huge problem. The, the Irish food industry is it's probably the biggest challenge for the food industry. We're incredibly fortunate as a food industry in Ireland to have the state agencies of Bordbia, uh, Enterprise Ireland, Chagas, and the other agencies that are working to support the Irish food industry. Other food companies internationally look at what happens in Ireland in awe at the ability of a of an industry to work together. The ecosystem in the Irish food industry is incredibly strong. Companies help one another. Uh, there's a sense of a phrase that's used in the food industry of coopetition, uh, competitors cooperating, helping one another to to introduce to customers to non-competing, obviously in, in a non-competing way, uh, but helping working together to help one another. Uh, and everybody knows everyone. It's a very small industry, uh, and it's it's a sector which is grown right through the recession. Every year for the past six or seven years, there's been growth in exports. And, and that growth will continue. Uh, Irish food exports will probably double in the next five or six years. Tell me a little bit about your, your home life, because you work with your wife and you've got two little girls at sure. home. Uh, how does that work, working alongside your, 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 your better half, no doubt, and having the girls um, uh, getting enough time with them as well? Uh, beyond any question, um, any business success I've had, any um, any progress I've made in any of the public service stuff that we've done or the charity work we do in, in Haiti or Africa, uh, without any exception, my proudest uh, achievement is the success of our family. Uh, as a family, uh, we have a, an incredible, fortunate life. 
my wife is Alison Kauser. She's known to probably some of your listeners and viewers uh, as one of the dragons on Dragon's Den. Um, uh, it was announced a couple of years ago when she took up that role that she was uh, to be appointed as one of the, uh, the investors on Dragon's Den. And I tweeted, uh, I was very proud of my tweet. Um, uh, I've been married to a dragon for 20 years and now at last the rest of the world knows. And she sort of laughed and she's forgiven me now. And it's, uh, she's got over that, uh, that challenge. Um, uh, but Alison has uh, had great success in her investments uh, and in our investments. We work together on, on a lot of the projects. And, and she's a co-founder of East Coast Bakehouse and we've worked together. We share an office. Uh, we have an office on uh, uh, Fitzwilliam Place here in Dublin. Uh, we uh, we work together. Thankfully, we managed to close off at times when we want to uh, when we we sort of shut up shop and uh, and turn back to family life. Uh, we have two girls, uh, not so little anymore. Our um, eldest girl is seventeen, oh. and uh, our uh, Shona and our youngest girl Tara is almost fourteen. Um, so they're growing up into fantastic uh, uh, ladies who are. Uh, really well adjusted and uh, I'm very proud of them. And, and do they have aspirations to, to work in, in in your world? And I wonder what advice you would give to them if they were to kind of start with a, a blank piece of paper like, like you've uh, done with, with, yeah. with your latest enterprise. I think um, they are, they have an interest in business. They've seen businesses being developed and we talk about it. As, as I was growing up, we're doing the same thing in our family. Uh, I don't know if they'll end up in business. I've, I've no idea. Um, they they have much wider interests. They're um, uh, very taken by uh, Alison is the chair of uh, Women for Election, uh, the body that uh, encourages um, uh, female candidates to run for elections of various types and trains them to uh, run for election. Uh, so that conversation also happens a lot in the uh, in the house. Um, so I think they need to have the choices. They need to have opportunities. Um, uh, I think the the world where women and girls have to limit their choices is gone. And uh, for the sake of our daughters, uh, that future needs to be like that. There needs to be opportunities for women. They, they can't. The number of women who are in senior positions in management is too low. The number of people and women in, in politics is too low. Um, there needs to be there needs to be opportunities. And the barriers that are in place for women, not just our daughters, but for any women, I think, if those barriers are removed, it'll make the economy stronger and society a better, a better economy. And if they, came, if, if they came to you with a, a business plan, uh, what were the first, what are the key things you'd be looking for from that business plan to tell whether actually it had legs or not? Uh, I think a, somebody who wants to start a business uh, can find a way through whatever the barriers are that are there if they have the energy and the will and the drive to make something happen. So, People awful, often say, I'd start a business if only I had the funds. You can find the funds. You can, you can get a group of people together and do crowdfunding or you can get some money from a bank or you can get some money from friends or you can, get, you can find a way to get the funds to get something started. People say they might start a business if they had an idea. If we locked ourselves in this room for two hours, you'd walk out with 100 ideas, good ideas, really good ideas for a business. So all the barriers that people raise saying, I'd start a business if are not real. The only thing that stops a business being created is the energy, the drive, the self-belief, the self-awareness of the individual or the teams that are, are starting the business. And I think if they have that, uh, then a business can be successful. They can they can find their way over all the, all the hurdles that are there. Okay. Michael Carey, fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Enjoyed it. Thank you. 
And that's it for the Architects of Business this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, too, to our guest, Michael Carey, our producer, Patrick Hohey, and all of the team here at Joe. This programme is made in partnership with EY, Entrepreneur of the Year. You can go to their website, eoy.ie, to learn more about the programme and, indeed, all of the finalists for this year. Make sure you don't miss out on future or, indeed, past editions of the Architects of Business. You can subscribe for free on iTunes or on your favourite Android podcast app where you can watch the show on YouTube and while you're there check out some of Joe's other podcasts including the Hard Yards on Rugby the GAA Hour and our movie show The Big Review Ski next week on The Architects of Business the man who's got the lunch industry sliced, diced and freshly chopped that's Brian Lee do join us for that bye bye The Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland.